If you have your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. Before we, uh, we read our passage for today and begin, uh, just wanted to, uh, to share just very briefly uh, when we got word about Jeremy Williams passing away, uh, one of the um, passages that the Lord brought to mind is towards the, the latter part of Hebrews chapter 10, where uh, the author says, uh, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. I don't know that we have ever seen a better example of confident endurance than what we saw out of Jeremy Williams and his family. Um, later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run our race with endurance. Part of what we ought to consider is that uh, by knowing Jeremy and his family, there's a tremendous grace and blessing that has been given to us to be able to see what real authentic faith looks like. Faith that endures in times of testing, faith that does not throw away the confident hope and expectation of future reward. And that Jeremy, in his own way, 14, 15 years battling through ALS, now can be said to have overwhelmingly conquered through Christ Jesus who saved him. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, by, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask that the very Spirit that has regenerated and renewed us so that we could hear your voice through the pages of Scripture would effectively work in our hearts and minds this morning. That you would accomplish your purpose with your word that you would shape, that you would mold, that you would make us more like Christ. If you need to do that by way of conviction, we ask that you would be gracious to convict. If you would do that by way of comfort, we ask that you would be gracious to comfort, and we'll give you all the glory for it. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. So, uh, confession time right up front. You, you read the passage ahead of time that you're going to be going over in, uh, in the next sermon. 
So we get done with uh, 2, 11 through 14, and that was after going through three or four weeks of instructions about godly living and why we want to live godly. And then, yeah, you come to 3, 1 through 7, and you read 3, 1 through 7, and you think, this is just a rehash of what Paul already said. He just sort of changes it up a little bit. The wording is a little bit different. Uh, on further reflection, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think Paul was just trying to fill up space on a page, like he had a, a word count minimum that he had to hit before he could send the letter off. Uh, I would encourage you to, th to think about the way that chapter 2 and chapter 3, at least this first paragraph in chapter 3, the way that they complement each other uh, in a couple ways. One, keep in mind that when we were in chapter 2, uh, the instructions that Paul gives for godly living, he gives to unique and distinct groups within the church, right? So, older men and younger men, older women, younger women, slaves. So he addresses them individually as groups and gives them specific instructions that perhaps are more unique or appropriate for their particular setting or their challenges in the Christian life. In 3, 1 through 7, Paul is not addressing different segments or groups within the church. He's addressing the church as a whole. All right, so right off the bat, if you, if you sort of lulled yourself to sleep through, say, three-quarters of chapter two because you felt like, well, all I need to do is pay attention to the section that addresses where I am in my life stage, you don't get that luxury in 3, 1 through 7. What Paul says here is addressed to the church as a whole, not to any one group. The second thing, and perhaps... Uh, perhaps a, a greater distinction or more essential to the passage is that the motivation or the perspective seems to be a little bit different. In chapter 2, Paul is addressing the way that Christians ought to live consistent with their faith, that they, they ought to live godly lives. And one of the, the primary concerns or motivations that Paul has in writing that is because of how unbelievers will see us. So, for example, he says, you know, in his instructions to older women and younger women that they are to live this way so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Well, won't be dishonored, you know, by the way that we display it to the world around us. Or in addressing young men, uh, it's important that we live this way uh, so that they will have nothing bad to say about us. Or in addressing his instructions to slaves, he says that you ought to live this way so that you are adorning the doctrine or making attractive the doctrine of our Savior. There, there seems to be in Paul's mind that one of the reasons that Christians ought to live godly is because of the way that we present ourselves, the way that we are seen by those who are not inside the church. 3, 1 through 7 is a little bit different because it seems like here, Paul's concern is not so much godly living for the sake of how they see us, but godly living for the sake of how we see them. And we'll get to that in a moment here. I think that part of what Paul was doing in chapter 2 was describing godly living in the day-to-day -day Christian life, much of which we would see for ourselves. In chapter 3, though, Paul seems to be thinking primarily about godly living as we interact with those people who are outside of the faith. So this is, I think, 
in 3, 1 through 7, this is sort of a description of what it's like for godly people to live in an ungodly society. This is what godliness means for Christians when you live in a world, which the world has always been and always will be, hostile to your faith in opposition to what you understand to be true, to what your goals and perspectives are. Here's what godly living means when you're living in an ungodly society. And so we're going to try to take this in two, in, in two ways, two main points. It breaks down rather neatly. One, you have the, the command that's given in verses 1 through 2. And then in 3 through 7, you have the basis or the cause for the command. So look at verses 1 through 2 with me. Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. If we could try to condense that and sum it up, we might be able to do it in three ways. Be submissive, do good to others, and be peaceable. That might be a way to try to condense a little bit further. Be submissive, do good, be peaceful. Now, in saying that, keep in mind that one of the thing, that there are a couple of things that we ought to consider about this command. One, this command is universal. Paul does not give any exceptions in terms of who these instructions are for. If you are a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, if you believe yourself, profess yourself to be one of the people of God, this is a universal command given to you regardless of your station in life. It makes no difference whether you're an employer or an employee, a parent or a child, a senior adult or a young adult, male or female. This is a universal command, universal instructions given to all Christians. This is the way that we live when we are engaged with people in the world around us. The second thing that we might want to say is that along with the universal nature of this command is that this command ought to be seen as communicating what normal, basic Christianity looks like in real life. This is not instructions that are given to those who are super saints. Here, let, let's do this. Let's, let's sort of ratchet the, the tension up a little bit, okay? Because after giving the instructions in verses 1 and 2, Paul goes down and says, you know, because at one time we were sort of like them. That's, that's verse 3. Verse 3 then, we'll, we'll get to in a minute what that says about us. But, but at the very least, part of what Paul is doing in verse 3 is describing the kinds of people that we're living with. So if you look at verse 3... We also once were, meaning we also, like them, were. This is what they are now. This is what we were. And then notice the description. We were, they are, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So can we, can we take the instructions and put that with verse 3? 
we could say it something like this. Christian, be submissive, do good, be peaceful to foolish, disobedient, deceived, lustful, and hateful people. The instructions in verse 1 and 2 are not given for us to carry out and to live when we get a modicum of respect from those who are outside of our Christian faith. If they respect me, I will respect them. That's not what Paul says. The instructions that, were given in verse, that are given in verses 1 and 2 are not given to us to extend to others when they show us some love and some kindness. When they do us a turn for good, we'll do them a turn for good. That's not what the Word says. We are not being told that so long as they don't speak evil of you, you don't speak evil of them. That's not what the Word says. It is much more stark, much more of a contrast than that. All that we have in verses 1 and 2 in this universal command to all Christians, all places, all times is, you live this way, this is what godly living looks like for you when you are rubbing shoulders with ungodly people who, by the way, are not seeking to live the way that you're living. It doesn't matter how they treat you. It doesn't matter what you're owed or you feel like you're owed. This is the way that you interact with them. This is the way that you respond to them. Normal Christianity looks like this. Normal Christianity is insane to the way that we naturally think about the way that we interact with people in the world around us, is it not? You have a jerk of a neighbor. I'm going to assume for a moment that you're not the jerky neighbor. You have a jerk of a neighbor. What does God call you to do? Batten down the hatches? Make sure that as soon as you make it home, you make sure the garage door comes down so that you're sealed off and cordoned away from all of that negativity over there. No, God says in His Word that when you have a jerky neighbor, someone who does not treat you well or speak well of you or your kids or whatever it is, He says, why don't you do something good for them? That's not the way that I think at all. But that's the way that God has instructed us to live. So we ought to ask then, just right from the outset, do the instructions that we have in verses 1 and 2, do the instructions that we see in verses 1 and 2, do they match, do they resemble the way that we're living our Christian life? Monday through Saturday. Do you submit to those who are in authority over you? Do you give right, proper, God-honoring submission and obedience to governing authorities?
Do you submit to your boss, your employer? Do you obey the instructions that you're given? Students, do you submit to the authority of the classroom teacher or the administrators? Do you obey the instructions that are given to you by them or by your parents? Even if the instructions and the standards or the policies and procedures seem to be unreasonable, do you submit? Do you obey? Do you look for opportunities to do good to someone? to do something good, right? Something tangible, something that has a real-life benefit to them. Do you look for opportunities to do something good even when they are not deserving of something good? Or maybe you could ask the question, when was the last time you did something good for a neighbor, for a coworker? for a boss, for a spouse, especially if your coworker, your boss, your spouse, your teacher is an unbeliever. Do you hold your tongue? Do you not speak evil, not blaspheme other people behind their back? You hold your tongue when you're in the boss's office. How do you talk when you're in the break room? You hold your tongue when the teacher or the professor is addressing you. How do you talk, though, once you're outside of the classroom and you're with your friends? Parents, when you're at the soccer field or the baseball field, how do you speak about other parents? How do you speak about the officials or the umpires or the kids on the other team? The description in verses 1 and 2 is what Paul says, what God says is normal Christian living in an ungodly society. This is par for the course. You say, well, Merritt, that's all fine and good. The problem is, is that Paul just does not understand the complexities of modern society. He does not understand the intricacies of the social, social exchanges that go on, all of the legalities and right, I mean, we're just, we're just so advanced and sophisticated. He just can't, he couldn't have possibly have foreseen how difficult it would be to live the Christian life in 2022. Seriously? These instructions, this command is being given to what, for all intents and purposes, what are probably new baby infant Christians living on the island of Crete, living in a Cretan society where up is down and black is white. 
They pride themselves on being sinister and deceptive. They make no bones about the fact that they are slaves to their lust, that they are gluttonous, that they are enslaved to their passions. And Paul is telling these new Christians, this is what normal Christian living means for you in a Cretan society. You think Columbus is a Cretan society? So what? Titus 3, 1 and 2. You consider this to be a Cretan society? You still live this way. Paul is writing to baby, infant Christians saying this is what normal Christianity looks like, surrounded, immersed in the Cretan culture. The odds are very, very good that the Roman emperor at the time who at the time that Paul is writing Titus is Nero. And Paul says, you submit to your authorities. You obey. Now, understand, there are limits. This is not to say that Christians must submit or must obey immoral commands or instructions. It's not to say that there is not a time and a place for Christians to take on a prophetic voice in speaking out against the harm that we see in the culture around us and injustice and suffering. Not denying that at all. But overall, this appears to be, verses 1 and 2 appears to be the norm Whereas the civil disobedience and taking on a prophetic voice seems to be more the exception to the rule. In other words, I would suggest that on the reading of 3, 1, and 2, that this description should more often characterize the way that you live in, in the society around you more so than you being described as a culture warrior. There's a balance. It has to be struck. But Christians ought to be known and ought to be recognized by the kind of descriptions that we get in verses 1 and 2. If all that Christians are known for is their bluster, their harshness, their animosity, their antagonism, something is not right. So this is the command. As a general rule, allowing for the fact that there are some exceptions where we cannot bend, so far as you are able, what it means to live godly in an ungodly society is that you live in submission to the authorities over you, you look for opportunities to do good to your neighbor, and you try to live peacefully. Verses 3 and following give the cause or the basis for that command. Why should 
godly people be so gracious and so kind to ungodly people, especially when those ungodly people may be in active hostility to us. Why should we care to live this way in their midst? Verse 3, for, see that? The basis for the command. This is why we ought to live this way. For, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. The reason that we ought to live godly in an ungodly society is because we used to be ungodly ourselves. We so easily forget that apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ, the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, there is no difference between me and my neighbor. By nature, the description that Paul gives in verse 3, he says, was true of them or is true of them and was true of us. The implication being, if at one time you were just like them and God was kind and gracious to you, why should you not be kind and gracious to them? You say, oh, well, did you hear what Paul just said? Did you hear that description? That was not me. Don't kid yourself. We also were once this way. Included in the we is the author who's writing. Paul can say of himself, this is what I was like, just like you, before God saved me. I don't care if you are hyper-religious, were hyper-religious, were a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout or anything like that, I don't care how many old women you helped walk across the street in the midst of oncoming traffic, until God saved you, you and I were verse 3. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will say things like, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Spiritually speaking, we were rotting corpses. Some of you may be tempted to think, no, no, let me back this up, all of us are tempted to water this down. None of us are this bad. Let me caution you not to do that. 
one reason why we ought not to water this down is because if you watered down the bleakness of your situation prior to your salvation, you were watering down the magnificence of the salvation that we've received. But one of the ways that we're tempted to water this down is we say, well, I was saved at a young age. I, I was not anything like this. If you were dead in your sins and transgressions when you were at a young age, that means that you already, spiritually speaking, were a rotting corpse. The fact that your rotting soul had not been given more time to achieve the pungent odor that the other rotting souls around you had is no reason to brag. God saved you at a young age. Praise the Lord. He saved you from a lot of heartache. He saved you from a lot of misery. You say, well, I wasn't saved at a young age, but even as an adult, I didn't live like this. Maybe so. Maybe not to the full degree, but this is who we were at the very core of our being. This is our disposition. This is what we are naturally oriented to. The fact that God would hold the pungent odor of your rotting soul in check so that it does not fester and stink as much as it could if He had removed His restraining hand is also no reason for you to brag and to take false comfort. Most of the time that we don't live this sort of description, this verse 3 description, out to the fullest, most of the time that we don't do that, it's, it's pure ego. I'm not refusing or refraining from sin because I love God and I love righteousness. I'm not sinning this way because it's not just socially acceptable in this instance. I want others to think well of me, and so to think well of me, I need to do some, some good things. Or as one man said it, he looked at the issue of the fact that our conscience seems to, in some ways, work against this prevailing sin nature that we have. And he says the human conscience is one-fifth fear of other humans, one-fifth superstition, one-fifth prejudice, one-fifth vanity, and one-fifth custom. You probably had 20 different reasons for not committing the sin or sins that you could have committed. None of them had anything to do with the fact that you loved God. None of them. We were like them. Say, yes, we were like them, but we're not anymore. Therefore, I'm not so worried about how I conduct myself with them. When they want to get their act together and change, they can change just like we changed. <laughs> Who changed in Titus 3? Verse 3 says, here is what we were, just like them, we once were also like this, 
Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Where, where is the change that we did in those verses? Anyone see it? One of the things that's so striking about the description that Paul gives here, he doesn't even mention faith. We are in, in Titus 3, we are not even given an inch of daylight that would allow us to think that the reason that we are no longer the way we used to be, the reason that we are different from the world around us is in some way because we did something. So if someone were to ask you the question, you used to be like this, but you're not anymore, you're different. Why is that? If your answer to that question starts off with the first person, I, you've already got the answer wrong. I did such and such. I thought this. I, that's not what the Scriptures say. Not in this passage. The proper answer in response in Titus 3, if someone asks the question, you used to be like that, but you're not anymore. Why are you so different now? The proper answer is the third person. He saved me. People who recognize that they are saved purely as an act of kindness and grace from God are the most compassionate, generous, gentle people you will ever find. Maybe one of the reasons that we have such a hard time living godly lives among ungodly people is because we so easily forget how kind God has been to us. We get lulled into thinking that the reason that God saved us is because, well, we were just a different class. We were a different type. We were cut out of a different mold than what the rest of these people were. Nonsense. We were not any different from them. It is the sheer mercy of God that makes us different from who we once were. He saved us. In the Greek, Paul actually front loads that verse. We, because English, we, we want the subject and the verb up front. We, we read verse 5 as, He saved us not on the basis of works that we have done. Paul actually front loads it the other way. Just to stress and get across to us that it has nothing to do with us. He goes from verse 4 into verse 5 this way. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, not on the basis of works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Do you hear that?
You ought to be submissive and good and peaceful to ungodly people because you, weren't, you once were ungodly as well. We once were ungodly, and the only reason that we are no longer that way is because God saved us. The saving that God did is described in verse 5 as being through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. Regenerated. We were dead. We had nothing to offer. We had no virtue. We had no righteousness. We had no good qualities to offer God. Spiritually speaking, we were dead in our sins and we loved it. By the grace and mercy of God, He regenerated us. He made us alive so that we could live godly lives. We did not begin to live godly lives so that God could save us. He saved us so that we could live godly lives. When we consider the grace and the mercy of God that we have experienced firsthand, the more we come to grips, the clearer the picture is of how undeserving we are, we were, and how kind and good God was to us, the more difficult it becomes for us not to extend that same sort of kindness and grace and mercy to other undeserving people. Let me say, I'm, I'm sure that in this sanctuary, there are different types of people who are, who are in here right now. Some of you may be long-standing members of Edgewood Baptist, maybe long-time attenders, I don't know, but, you know, professing Christ. Some of you I would challenge and encourage to consider whether or not you know this to be true of you. Namely, do you know that you are different because God has made you different? Not because you merely decided to reform some of your behavior or to modify some of your responses. Do you know that you are one of God's children because He gave birth to you by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit? Do you know that your heart is different? Even if you may not always perfectly carry out this new inclination of your heart, even if you don't always pursue God the way that you ought to, even if you're oftentimes distracted, 
Can you say in your heart of hearts, but I know that I'm different because my heart longs for things that I didn't want before. The inclination of my heart is to be close to God and to know righteousness and holiness. That's what I want. Do you know that to be true for you? If you don't know if you're not convinced, if you're not assured of the fact that you live differently from the world around you because you are different, even this moment today is an act of mercy and grace that God is giving you to reflect, to consider the fact that you may have false comfort in the promises of Jesus Christ, that they may not actually belong to you because you have not been born again. You can give the appearance, you can ape or you can mop the form, but that's not what has happened to you in your heart and in your mind. If that's you, it is God's mercy today that you would hear this and be reminded of the fact that only those who have been regenerated by a sovereign, miraculous work of the Holy Spirit truly belong to Him. Or there may be some of you here who are under no illusions. You would not pretend, you would not even try to tell someone that this has happened with you. When you read the description in verse 3, you can't read that in the past tense and say, I was like that. You know in your heart that you are like that. You may feel utterly hopeless and unable to do anything about it. Here's the good news you are unable to do anything about it. You cannot save yourself, but God can. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to raise you and your lifeless dead spirit to life again. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here and you have not been regenerated, if you have not been declared right in the eyes of God, not because of your works, but because of the works of Jesus Christ, it is an act of mercy from God to you that you would be here today hearing the words of this passage spoken over you so that you could be called to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and be saved from ungodliness and the judgment that must come for it. Finally, there may be, like most of us in here, I hope most of us, I don't really know, God knows. You may be here and you know for certain that you have been regenerated. You know that the inclination of your heart bends towards God, that you, that you want to obey, that you do believe, that you do trust. Yes, you're not perfect. Yes, you, right, all that. No perfection or anything like that. 
But maybe your attitude to the corruption in the world around you has suddenly worked into your heart and mind in such a way that you find it very difficult, if not impossible, to do three, one, and two. You, you find it hard to submit to heavy-handed people. You find it hard to do good to people who are unkind. You find it hard to live peacefully with stressful people. If that's you, I would just appeal to you. One of the best things that you can do is to take your eyes off of the world around you and to set it on the grace and glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Because the more your focus is on the glory of Christ and what He did for an unworthy sinner like you and like me, the more we will find that all of the excuses and all of the obstacles that prevent us from living godly in an ungodly society just begin to fade into the background. If God has so loved us, how can we not love in return? Bow with me in prayer. Father, we praise you that in your mercy, in your kindness, in your love for us, that you saved us. Not because of anything that we have done or we did, not because we were deserving, but sheerly as an act of grace. Son of God, Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are the means of our salvation, that you offered up your perfect obedience to be counted for us, that you offered yourself up in our place to suffer and die the punishment, the penalty that we deserved. And we thank you that by offering up yourself, our debt was fully paid for and was satisfied, and that by rising again, you have given us the promise of new life that we are even now beginning to experience as we walk godly in this present age. Holy Spirit, we praise you for the miraculous, regenerating, and renewing work that you brought to bear on these dead souls to make us alive to God so that we could feel affection and longing for our Creator and our King rather than hatred and hostility. And God, we ask that in all of this, that you would continue to conform us into the image of your Son, that you would continue to enable us to see with greater clarity the magnificent gift of our salvation, and that we would live more humbly, more gracious, more kindly in a hostile world. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond in worship as we stand.
What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Just sing it out, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, we just sing it out there, His mercy, His mercy is more. new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more our sins they are many his mercy is more would you reflect on his wonderful mercy today Amen. Let's pray. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.